first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Luke writes more of the New Testament than any other author. And you think, well, what about Paul? Uh, when you count up the verses, Luke writes more than anybody else. Uh, and really, as, as we'll see in a few moments, um, we have the gospel according to Luke, and really what it started out to be, we would call it Luke-Acts, because Luke is the author of Acts, and really it is one long work. And one, uh, Luke, the gospel is really to present the person of Christ, and then the book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles, really demonstrate the, the, the life of the early church and how that went. But really it is one long work, and we'll see its purpose in just a moment. So if you're able, please stand with me as we prepare to read the Word of God. Heavenly Father, come upon us this morning that we would see just the, the greatness and, and your glory revealed to us as we begin uh, just, just a few weeks to look at the Gospel of Luke and his works and what that means in our lives today. Lord, send your Holy Spirit that we would have clarity and understanding. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So the Gospel of Luke, the first chapter. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod the king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years." Now it came about while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. 
And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. And the people were waiting for Zacharias and wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remaining mute. And it came about when the days of his priestly service were ended that he went back home. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. This is the inspired word of God for us today. So please be seated. This, the first four verses really of Luke form the prologue that tell us the purpose of the gospel of Luke, really the purpose of Luke acts together and why Luke has endeavored to write this work inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, and then he gives some reasons we'll look at, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Uh, we see most excellent used as a title two other places, most excellent Felix and most excellent Festus. And so we get the impression that Theophilus is some sort of Roman official of some sort, uh, a pretty high Roman official who obviously has heard the gospel or, or heard some portion of it and now looks, uh, is, is for some reason, Luke says, I don't think you're quite convinced with everything, so I'm going to endeavor to write out for you exactly what you need to know about Christ as, as I've heard from the eyewitnesses and as I have researched myself so that you will know about Jesus Christ. The opening verses tell us clearly, this is the reason Luke has put pen to paper, that Theophilus might be convinced of Jesus Christ. Now, he didn't write in the larger scheme, he didn't write just for Theophilus, he wrote also for us, who um, might need, I don't know, a little bit of convincing, uh, a little bit of proof, because some people, you know, the gospel is really not some blind leap of faith. Okay, for those of you who, who remember your philosophy class from uh, college, uh, Soren Kierkegaard was a uh, uh, Danish philosopher, and, and he said, when it comes to faith, you know, you just have to jump in. Okay, faith in God. It, there's just not enough proof or enough evidence for us to rationally understand, and you just have to close your eyes and jump in the pool and trust that God will catch you. Well... Christ doesn't view belief in him in that fashion, that it is not simply a blind leap of faith. There is plenty of evidence for who Christ was, what he did, the exactness of his life, the fulfilling of all the prophecies from the Old Testament so that we would know Jesus Christ. And Luke says, Theophilus, there's plenty of evidence. Let me give it to you. Let me give it to you. Now, what will persuade a person to believe in Jesus Christ. Well, we're all good Reformed believers. We know it's the Holy Spirit. So then do I just sit back and, and let the Holy Spirit work in somebody's life? Well, no, we have a part to play in it as well. The gospel has to be heard. 
It needs to be seen in our lives and heard from our mouths. So what is our part in the conversion of an individual or the, the, the establishing of faith in someone? The Holy Spirit does the work, but he uses us as the instrument, as the vehicle. Two basic ways that um, skeptics or doubters can be convinced of something. One is to see and hear it for themselves. Um, and the other is to have reliable witnesses tell them about it. So you must either see it firsthand or have a reliable witness and then the question of how reliable is that witness in this topic. Well, not, we know that Theophilus or none of us ever saw Christ, never touched or heard him. We didn't see the risen Christ. We didn't see any of his miracles. Uh, we didn't hear his teaching from his own mouth. But Luke knows that all the knowledge that Theophilus has of Christ, in all likelihood, all that he has was given through a witness, someone who saw it or heard it and tells Theophilus about it. Much like us, none of us saw Christ, our witness is here in the word of God that tells us all that we need to know about Jesus Christ. So if Theophilus, or really anyone who is skeptical, skeptical, uh, is to be persuaded that Christianity is true, they have to be convinced of the reliability of the witnesses. So Luke uh, addresses that in verse 3. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning. Having investigated everything, he was thorough and he was careful in his investigation and in the research that he did. He can trace it back to the eyewitnesses. He was meticulous. Now, why was Luke so meticulous in his research? The subject was very important. Okay? The subject was the Son of God. The subject was the fact that his death atoned for our sins, and we need to make sure that we have it in the exact proper fashion so that people will hear it, and they won't be able to say, well, yeah, but I heard from over here that, that that's not the way it happened. Luke says, I've got the research. I've talked to the eyewitnesses. Look at the quality of my sources in verse 2. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us. Luke says, I've gone to the people who saw Christ face to face. Now, who would he be referring here to? He's been to the apostles. Okay? He has spoken with them. These are the eyewitnesses who spent the years with Christ, who saw him do the things that Luke is about to write about. He says, there is no doubt these resources are as good as it gets. So Luke lays a foundation, both for Theophilus and us. This is the evidence, okay? Here's the quality of my research and of my witnesses. Now, it's, why is this important? Well, we're going to look at the first two chapters of Luke. Now, this is October, and, and, and you know, if you remember, usually we preach from Luke at Christmas time. Well, there is so much that Luke lays down in these first two chapters. You, you can see Luke chapter 1 has 80 verses in it, 80 verses in it. So there's a lot of information there that Luke lays as a foundation, and then he builds upon it to show us as a proof when we reach the pinnacle of the birth of Christ and the first few days of his life. So this is the only gospel that really recounts the foretelling and birth of John the Baptist. And he begins with John's birth announcement that he is coming to Zacharias. 
And then we see in 26 to 38, the announcement of Jesus' birth to Mary, the connection between Mary and Elizabeth and Mary's song, how she magnifies the Lord, uh, the birth of John, his father's praise, and then the birth of Jesus and the songs of the angels that we will look at. There's clearly a pattern here that Luke wants us to understand. Now, he wants us to see that there is a, compare, in a sense, compare and contrast Jesus and John the Baptist as an example. Both children's birth are announced ahead of time, okay, ahead of time. Now, uh, both births are unnatural or miraculous. In both cases, the, the angel tells them what the name should be. It was normal for the first son to be named after the father. How many of you are named after your fathers? Okay. All right. That was the norm, that if you were the first son, your name should be the same as your father's. And, and Zacharias is, you know, he can't speak. And what's the first words out of his mouth when he can speak? If you cheat and look ahead. Everybody's expecting his name to, the boy's name to be Zacharias. And he says, his name will be John. Those are the first words out of his mouth from the announcement. You, you imagine he kept silent for nine months. Okay. Now, some guys, that's no problem. Okay. But he kept silent for nine months. Okay. Before he said, his name shall be John. Okay. Some of the differences, John was born to an older woman who was way past childbearing age. Jesus was born to a virgin who was not married. John was given a name that means God is gracious. Jesus was given a name that meant he was the Savior. John was to prepare for the Lord. Jesus was the Lord who would reign over us. So in this way, Luke helps Theophilus and us to see the all-important thing in history. It is God's sovereign plan that it worked out this way. It's not by accident, not by luck. It is God's sovereign plan. So how does he do this? Well, look at verse 13. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. The only thing that makes this kind of authoritative prediction possible is that the, this happens before she conceives. The Lord says it will happen because the Lord is controlling it and has determined that it will happen, so the Lord makes it happen. The Lord did not come upon this man and this old woman and, and say, oh, you know what? She, she's going to give birth, and this is a great opportunity for me to use this uh, to further my plan." It's not as if the Lord comes upon Mary, who, who for some reason is pregnant and says, ah, this will fit into my plan. No, he determines that this is what will happen so that his plan will be carried out. These are not just predicted events. They are humanly impossible events. So we understand Elizabeth's conception and Mary's conception were humanly impossible events events. They could not happen unless the Lord intervened. Look at verse 7 here. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. But after John is conceived, if we turn over to verse 36, we see, 
And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. You see, for God, nothing is impossible. We look at circumstances around us and say, oh, you know what, that, that, that just is, is no hope. There's no hope there. Those things can't be done. And can you imagine that Zacharias hears this from God? And he says, you're kidding me, Lord. Okay? You're, you're kidding me. This is impossible. And what, and what does Mary say? She does not say, you know, this is impossible. She says, Lord, please explain this to me. So we're going to see in a moment there's a great distinction between Zacharias' response to the impossible work of the Lord in his life and Mary's response to the impossible work in her life. See, Zacharias says to Gabriel, How shall I know this, for I am old? Verse 18. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife's advanced in years. The angel answered, said, I'm Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe the word of God. And these things shall be fulfilled in their proper time. Zacharias doesn't believe. Now, he is a righteous man. He and Elizabeth are righteous individuals. He is serving the Lord as he, in the capacity that he has been prepared for and, and blessed for. But he does not believe that it is possible for this to happen. Now, if an angel comes to you, I, I've never, to my knowledge, I have never been face to face with an angel. But if an angel comes to you in a place where you are completely alone, and nobody else is to be there, and suddenly you look, and there is this heavenly body here, and they tell you something. Now, wouldn't you think that that would be pretty solid evidence that you could believe that? If the Lord sends you an individual to give you a message, you would say, well, yeah, but Zacharias doesn't. He says, How can this, this is impossible. He lacked belief at that moment. Not in his life in general, but just at that moment. It seemed too incredible. It seemed impossible, too great for this to happen. So he doubts. He did not believe the promise. Now this is in contrast to somebody else who was too old to have a baby. You remember a couple from the Old Testament, Abraham and Sarah. And the, the angel comes and says, you're going to have a son. And, uh, you know, Abraham, quoted in Romans 4, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead because he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God. Now, Zechariah had unbelief, okay? And I think Luke tends to contrast that, as I said, with Mary's belief. She commends, Elizabeth commends Mary and says, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Zacharias didn't believe, Mary did believe. So how was Mary's faith expressed? Look at verse 34. When the angel finished predicting the birth, Mary says, How can this be since I am a virgin? Now this is distinct from Zachari what Zacharias said. 
Zacharias' comment was unbelief. Mary's comment is, can you, I want to understand this more. Can you explain this to me? Because common sense tells me it is impossible. But the Lord has said this is what's going to happen, so can you explain it to me? Zacharias didn't believe. Mary wanted an explanation. Zacharias wants more evidence. Mary says, I just don't understand what's going on, that this is possible. Mary receives at least a partial explanation. Uh, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Zacharias gets a rebuke from the angel. Mary gets a little bit of an explanation from the angel. Zacharias is made dumb for the next nine months or so. Mary, as we'll see, exalts the Lord with a song. So what do we learn from Zacharias and Mary as we, we begin this and, and lay a foundation here? The first thing is it's possible to demand too much evidence from the Lord. It is possible to demand too much evidence from the Lord. How often do we fail to take God at his word? If this is what God said, why, why do I need any really further explanation? Why should I be in unbelief about what he has said and the promises that he has made? With God, nothing is impossible. With God, nothing is impossible. And it's clear from what Luke writes that God loves to show us that. He loves to show us that on a regular basis. When we think we can't go on any further, God strengthens us. When we think we can't do something, God makes the way. He opens the door. When Zacharias and Mary come to a point and the, and the Lord says, I'm going to provide you children in, in a humanly impossible fashion, he does so to further his perfect plan. Not just to show off, but to further his perfect plan. God wants to teach us that we have to trust him, that we have to trust him, and that when we doubt, we have to trust him again. I can and love to do the humanly impossible. That's what the Lord says. I love to show my people my grace. I love to bestow upon my children the gifts that I have for them, the blessings that I have for them, especially when they walk in faith and they look at the world around them and say, this can't be possible. But the Lord makes it possible. So the first lesson we learn is that it's possible and dangerous, really, to insist on too much evidence. Who insisted on more evidence? Even though that they had seen the miracles of Jesus, they had seen healings, and they come to Jesus and say, you know, if, if you just do one more miracle for us right here, then we'll believe. That was the Pharisees. Nothing was going to change their heart. They had seen the wonderful works of Christ. They were never going to believe. They weren't ever going to believe. You know, it's common for even the most godly individuals to fall into momentary unbelief because something seems so, so impossible. Zacharias was a righteous man, but this seemed so impossible. But yet, it was possible with God. The second thing we learn is from Mary. It's okay to ask for explanations. Okay, Lord, you say I'm going to do this. How about an explanation? Okay. Now, it's okay to ask for one. There's no guarantee that you'll get one. Okay. Um, you know what Dad used to say when he said, now I want you to do this? 
And you say, well, why? You say, because. Is that enough of an explanation? Well, for dad it was, okay? (laughs) But not for us when we were children. Sometimes the Lord says, this is what's going to happen. And you say, can you give me an explanation? He may give us that. But we're not guaranteed that. How can I have a son, Mary says, when I have no husband? She saw the human impossibility just as clearly as Zacharias did. But she didn't reject the possibility in her heart. She didn't say that's impossible. She just said, how is this going to work? How will you make this happen? God is never opposed to our seeking understanding of his ways in history, of his ways in our lives. We learn two things. Don't demand too many signs when God has promised something. Because this is the way his character works. This is the way God acts. He has demonstrated it already throughout history. Is it appropriate to say, Lord, can you demonstrate it one more time for me so just I'm sure of it? And secondly, it's okay to want to understand the ways of God that seem perplexing to us. That was Mary. But it's not okay to be arrogant or cynical about what God says that he will do. See, nothing is impossible for the God that we serve. So let's trust him to do what is humanly impossible for us. Let's pray. Lord, just from these few verses, we get a glimpse that your sovereign plan will go forward no matter whether we fall into unbelief or not. That when you deem to do something, that we may not understand, that we may not think is possible, it is certainly appropriate for us to ask and say, Lord, can you explain this to me? We we may not get an answer until it is complete and we look back and we go, oh, that's what you were doing, Lord. Or you might give us an answer. We don't know if that satisfied all the questions in Mary's heart. A simple statement that the Spirit will come upon you and this is the way that it will be. But it was enough to get her through. Lord, in this life of faith that you call us to, pray that we each would be willing to dig into your word and look for the explanations of what it is that you call us to. To wait silently before you and patiently trusting that you will show us, trusting that you will give us confidence, trusting that you will reveal to us as much of your perfect will as we can understand and grasp, that we might move forward in the same fashion that Mary moved forward. I don't understand how it's going to go, but this is what the Lord said, and we need to do it. Lord, grant us a confidence that your grace is sufficient in all things that we face and that you, with you, nothing is impossible when your hand is upon it. Grant us wisdom, Lord, for the times ahead we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus, keep me near the cross. 254 is our hymn. Let's stand as we sing.
254.